This is Jason Hansen, pastor of Anchor Church. Thank you for jumping onto our sermon podcast. My prayer is that as you listen to this sermon, you're encouraged in your walk with Jesus and that you live for him in all of life. Enjoy the sermon now. You can turn um, your Bibles to the book of Titus, chapter 3, uh, where we're going to be this morning as we continue on this series uh, that we started last week. Every year we start with this vision series where we want to kind of uh, do a reset for those who've been around and an introduction for those that haven't about uh, just who we are as a church, what we're about. So last week we talked about our mission, and this week we're going to talk about our values. We have four values as a church. They are to be purposely biblical, passionately one, joyfully generous, and relentlessly outward. And we'll talk about what all those mean as we go. But those are our four values as a church. And really the question we're asking this year in this series is, if all else fails, what remains? What are those foundational things as Christians, and even as a church, as Anchor Church, that are going to stand the test of time and embolden and encourage our faith? And we think that our values are one of those things, um, as you'll see this morning. We just wrapped up the Christmas season, obviously. Uh, how many of you had uh, stuff on your Christmas list that you didn't get? You can raise your hand. How many has stuff on the list that you didn't get? Yep, there's plenty of hands up. That, that, that always seems to be the case, right? I call those aspirational gifts. They're gifts that you, you, you hope you'll get, but either because of money or because, I don't know, maybe no one cares. I don't know what it is. You, you just didn't get them. And, and I grew up in a, a family that had... A lot of kids and not a lot of money. So my siblings and I all had a lot of aspirational gifts. We had those gifts that you just hope for year after year, and they never seemed... Santa just didn't bring it. Uh, he, never, he never came through on those. And one of those things for me was a kite. But not just any kite, like a really cool kite. You know what I'm talking about? Like the ones that are shaped like a dragon or like an eagle or like a warplane, or something that when you see it flying up in the sky, you don't need to see who's on the other end. You know that kid is awesome. I want one of those kind of kites. You know, I, I kind of envisioned that I'd be, I have a picture here of a kid. I wanted to be like this kid. Just, he's just living his best life. He's flying that kite, living his best life. His smile, he, no care in the world, just running with his kite. And I want to hold that picture up here for a moment and just notice Kites are, are these kind of beautiful toys, aren't they? Uh, they're, they're all different. There's a diversity of kites, but, but they all kind of capture your eye and bring it upward. You have the, the bright colors. Uh, there, there's a bunch of different shapes, as I mentioned. Some, the really cool ones are shaped like dragons, as we all know. We all know that. So this kid could be cooler if he had a dragon kite. But still, it's cool. You know, the shape, the, the, the tassels that are hanging off of it. There's even, maybe you don't know this, you're not a nerd like me, but there's even what's called a stunt kite. So they do all sorts of cool tricks with these kites. Like, kites are amazing. Uh, but here's the thing about kites. The most important part of that kite is the part that no one pays attention to. The most important part, actually, of any kite, it's the only thing that all kites have in common, and no one pays attention to it. It's the string that, that, that tethers the kite to the ground. Or if you are a kite aficionado, you know it's called the flying line. Duh, right? The flying line that is actually how you control the kite. It's actually how you keep it flying, soaring in the air. It's when the wind dies down, you pull the tension and it keeps it up. When you need to bring it down, you use the flying line to bring it down gently and not crash it into the ground. Well, here's the thing, church. If Anchor Church were a kite 
our values would be the flying line. Our values are the thing that tether us to allow us to soar. Our values are what keep us from flying off in the winds of, uh, of doctrinal drift. Our values are what keep us from crashing into the ground due to complacency or selfishness. It's our values that actually tether us. They ground us in reality. So we could have an amazing band. We could have top-tier preaching. We don't, but we could. (laughs) We could have great programs. We could have all of those things, an amazing building, a state-of-the-art, beautiful building. Uh, We could have lights that you don't worry about falling on you. We could have all of those things. But without our values, we would not be able to soar. And here's why this matters for you, even if you're not a part of this church, because the same is true of you and I. We can have beautiful families. We could have the the job of our dreams. We could have beautiful homes and, and, and all of the stuff that we want. But if we don't have values that tether us to the truth of who God is and what he calls us to, we will not be able to soar. Our lives will either be blown away in distraction or complacency or worse, or they will crash into the ground. And so here's my sermon in a sentence. Here's the big idea this morning. Simply this, our values help us to soar in all conditions. Our values are so important. They are what allows us to soar in all conditions any condition, whether things are going great or horrible, our values are what allow us to soar. I found this definition. I was doing the, the lame thing of, I wanted to make sure as I typed this up that I was typing in the right soar. You know, I don't want to do like, you know, accidentally do S-O-R-E. <laughs> and everyone's sitting there going, what? This guy can't spell. So I was just looking at, just to verify, let me just make sure I'm putting the right soar. And I actually came across this definition that I thought was amazing and helpful. It says this, This is from vocabulary.com, every preacher's best friend. It says, to soar means more than just to fly. It means to rise swiftly, to feel the wind slipping below you as you ride it higher, higher, higher. Flying is just moving through the air. Soaring, though, suggests exhilaration, even joy. What a beautiful picture. Exhilaration, even joy, as we soar higher, higher, higher through the air. Our values help us to do that. So we're going to see this in the book of Titus. We're actually going to do kind of a, I guess, a little bit of a cliff notes through the whole book of Titus this morning. But we're just going to jump off of chapter 3, verse 14. So buckle in. This is the word of the Lord to us this morning. Titus chapter 3, verse 14 says this, let our people learn to devote themselves to good works for pressing needs so that they will not be unfruitful. It's God's word to us this morning. We want to go back through the book of Titus and actually see what he is talking about uh, when Paul talks about good works and, and how they allow us to be fruitful in his language or in the language we're using this morning, they allow us to soar on the winds, to go higher, higher, higher in exhilaration, even joy. Good works is a theme throughout the book of Titus. If you were to read it, you'll see that phrase come up a bunch of time. And, and, and here's what good works are. Good works are values in action. Okay, so when you hear me say good works, when you see it in the book of Titus, think values in action. That's what good works are as we think about it this morning. And 
Paul, in this book, he's writing to a, a fellow pastor, to a, a friend he's mentoring named Titus, and, and he, is, he is trying to give him both positive and negative examples of works that either allow you to soar on the winds or cause you to crash into the earth or even be blown away in different directions. And what we find, this importance of good works or values in action, is that it's actually possible to claim to know God, but by your works deny him. We find that in the book of Titus. It's in chapter 1. He, he talks about people who claim to know God, but because their values are either not in action or the values that they have operating underneath, those, good, those works that they have are not good. They actually deny the reality of God. So what he's saying is it's possible to claim to be a kite, but to actually just be a piece of plastic blowing in the wind. It's possible to claim to know God and yet to deny him by your works. And so, if that's the case, we need grounding values that help us to soar. We need grounding values to help us to know, how do I then soar on the winds higher, higher, and experience this life that Jesus has for me? And our values help us to do that. So we're going to see, I went full corny preacher this morning. We're doing an acronym this morning. For, yeah, we don't do them often, but I'm doing, I'm pulling it out. We are, there are four grounding values that we find here in the book of Titus, and we're going to spell out, the, the acronym is going to spell out the word SOAR, of course, duh, right? That's what we find in Titus, so that's what we're doing. We're going to start with the S. The S is for selflessness. This first value that we want to look at that is all over the book of Titus, um, but it is this value of being selfless, and he lays this out, Paul does, in a number of ways. Um, it's not just about, as we think about selflessness, it's not just about time or, or how we use our gifts. That, that's included. We'll talk about that. But even in how we use our money. And so Paul gives these, again, positive and negatives. On the positive side, he talks about elders. He's telling Titus to appoint elders in the church. This is a new church on the island of Crete, and it's one that needs leadership. And he's saying, as you appoint these elders, as you establish this leadership in the church, he gives a bunch of qualifications for them. And we won't go through all of them, but one of the things that jumps out to me is that they must not be greedy for money. They must not be greedy for money. You know, Paul recognizes that where your budget is, there your heart is. And so he's saying, hey, look at, the, look at these elders if they're good people, if they're upstanding people, they're good husbands, they're good fathers, they, they shepherd the church, hey, take a look at their budget as well. They must not be greedy for money. And on the flip side, he talks about these dirty, nasty Cretans. Um, and he's using, he's quoting one of their own prophets. This is in chapter 1, verse 12. And that prophet says that the Cretans, those people on the island of Crete, are lazy. They're liars. They're evil beasts, their own prophet says. They're they're lazy gluttons. And Paul says what they do is they actually go into households teaching what they shouldn't in order to get money dishonestly. They're greedy. Where your budget is, there your heart will be also. And Paul is calling Titus to appoint people who will lead in being selfless with their money. Not greedy, but generous. But that's not all he wants to see. So that's one category is money. The positive example is those who are not greedy, but are generous. But he goes on and he talks about people generously serving one another. 
If you were to read in chapter 2, verses 2 through 10, there's this whole list of people who are selflessly giving themselves away to serve others. Young people serve, old people serve, men serve, women serve. He even talks about enslaved people serving to build up the body. Everyone is involved in this selfless act of serving. It brings my mind to in 1 Corinthians when Paul talks about the body metaphor, that we are a body and that every part is important. If one part of your body stops working, your whole body is affected. And Paul says, this church, Titus, you need to lead them to be selfless and serve one another. He talks about missionaries that are coming through. This is in chapter 3, uh, verse 13. Actually, yeah, verse 13, he, he talks about this, these missionaries, Zenos and Apollos, who are on a missionary journey. And Paul says, diligently help them. Be selfless towards them. Diligently help them. And, and here's what I love. He says, so that they will lack nothing. Paul wants this young church in Crete that is just getting off the ground. He wants them to have a so that they will lack nothing mindset as they think about others. As they think about their brothers and sisters, this would be a good mindset for us to have as well if you don't have it. As you think about the person next to you or in front of you or behind you, do you have a so that they will lack nothing mindset? If they're in need physically, are we gathering around so that they will lack nothing? If they are in need of friendship, if they are in in need of prayer, if they are in need emotionally, whatever it is, do we have a mindset that says so that they will lack nothing, I will help diligently? This all takes selflessness. And it's actually exemplified. Our our foundation for this is in the work that Jesus has done for us. So Paul isn't saying, hey, hey, church in Crete, Titus, just pull this out of the depths. Come up with this value on your own. No, he actually grounds it in the selflessness of God himself. You can follow along with me for this part. Look in chapter 3, beginning in verse 4. It says this, but when the kindness of God our Savior And his love for mankind appeared. He saved us. Not by works of righteousness that we had done, but according to his mercy. So not by our contribution. Not because we moved in his direction first. Not because we had so much to offer. No, he saved us selflessly because that's who he is. Through the washing of regeneration and the renewal by the Holy Spirit. He poured out his spirit on us sparingly. Oh wait, that's what it says. He, he poured out his spirit on us cautiously. He poured out his spirit on us wisely so that he wouldn't be taken for granted. No, he poured out his spirit on us abundantly. Abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior so that having been justified by his grace, we might just scrape by. No, we may become heirs with the hope of eternal life. Paul says this selflessness that I'm calling you to, Titus, and and the church, I'm calling you to a selflessness that Jesus himself embodied for you. God the Son gave up himself, lived a perfect life for you, selflessly poured himself out on the cross for you, rose to new life, and, and he didn't stop there. Then through faith, he pours out his spirit abundantly. God gave himself for you abundantly, church. 
selflessly for no reason other than that's who he is and what he does. And just like him, we need to be selfless. Around here, we call this, va- this value being joyfully generous. That's what we call it around here. We try and capture this value of selflessness by saying we want to be joyfully generous. And when we say that, we're talking about our time. We're talking about our friendship. We're talking about our hospitality. We're talking about our money, certainly. We're talking about all that we have. That we would look at those things and say, this is not mine, my gifts, my possessions, my friendship. It's not mine to hoard, but it is God's to use. And so I want to be selfless. I want to be generous with this. It's an important value for us. It was an important value for this young church plant in Crete. It's important for us. So that's the S. The O is outreach-minded. Throughout this book, this letter to Titus, uh, Paul is connecting good works to this idea of adorning the message. You'll find that in chapter 2. He says, let your good works adorn the message, beautify the message, or confirm the message. Paul is concerned that they are preaching the gospel and that these values in action be supporting that message. Because Paul wants them to be outreach-minded. And again, this isn't coming from us. Really quickly, Paul points them to the source of who is the original evangelist. This is in chapter 2, verse 11. Again, you can follow along with me here. I told you it was a Cliff Notes version. We're bouncing around. He says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. This is God's heart. That his grace would show up, not when we were looking for it, but that it would appear for all people, instructing us to deny godlessness and worldly lusts and to live in sensible, righteous, and a godly way in this present age, while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the, great, of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He gave himself for us, uh, gave us, gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to cleanse for himself a people for his own possession, eager to do good works. What is Paul saying? He's saying, listen, God is the original evangelist. God is the one who was originally outreach-minded. He, in his grace, appeared. He came after us when we were lost and dead in our sins. He didn't leave us there. He came after us to redeem, to bring in from the outside to the inside a people for his own possession. A people who were lost and wandering, who were, as Paul says in Ephesians, children of wrath, are now children of God. That's you and I. If you're a Christian, God is the original evangelist. He's the one that came after us. And then notice what Paul does with this. Right after saying that in verse 15, he says, proclaim these things. Proclaim these things. Make sure the people know. Those who are far from God, make sure they know his heart for them, which is that they would be a people for his own possession. Proclaim these things. Preach of this grace, this redeeming grace that calls people out of worldly lusts and out of godlessness and into a life of beauty with the Spirit poured out on them abundantly. Proclaim these things. Be outreach-minded. At Anchor Church, we call this being relentlessly outward. That's our value, being relentlessly outward, meaning we, we don't want to become complacent 
We want to be relentless. And we don't want to be insular. We want to be constantly thinking about who in my community, who in my life is far from Jesus. So that I can proclaim these things, the the goodness of the gospel to them, so that they might be brought near to be children of the living God. So when we say relentlessly outward, we're talking about going out into uh, a church, or, or excuse me, to school, to work, uh, your neighborhood, uh, the grocery store, uh, wherever you go, the, the coffee place that you go to, and having Jesus and people on your mind. Who here is far from Jesus? Who can I establish a relationship with so that I can tell them, I can proclaim this glorious news that the grace of God has appeared and it's appearing again. He's coming back. Who can I tell? Who's that person in your life? For a long time we said it this way. It's a good way to still say it. Who's your one? Who's that one person that you're praying for regularly, that you're sharing the gospel, that person who is far from Jesus, who you want to see be brought near? Who is your one? So they're selfless, outreach-minded, but it's not just outward, it's also inward. Paul is calling them here to be about community. That's our A, being about community. Paul gives them a list of, again, there's good examples, bad examples throughout this book where he's just trying to lay before them these good works, these values in action. And he does so with community building in mind in chapter 3. In verse 2, he gives the negative side. He says, Titus, you need to teach the people not to slander anyone, to avoid fighting, to avoid those things that destroy community, slander, gossip, fighting, those things destroy community. Instead, teach the people to be kind, always showing gentleness to all people. For we too were once foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved by very various passions and pleasures. And here's how that worked out. Before you were a Christian, this is how it worked out as you think about community. Living in malice and envy, hateful, detesting one another. He's saying that is your former life. Your former life was one in which community, meaningful community, godly community could not survive. There was too much selfishness. There was too much hate. There was too much envy. Paul's saying, don't be like that. He actually says in chapter 3, verse 9, he says, avoid those things. Avoid them. Avoid foolish debates, genealogies, quarrels, arguments, disputes about the law. Because those are unprofitable and they're worthless. He said, guys, get off Twitter. Quit arguing with one another on Twitter. Seriously. Quit arguing with one another on Facebook. Quit fighting about things that don't matter. Don't do, avoid that stuff. He actually goes even further in verse 10. He says, reject a divisive person after a first and second warning. So he's saying, if there's someone among you that is causing division, you should warn them. You should correct them. Community matters. You need to be about community. If there's someone that's tearing down community, uh, uh, warn them. Warn them. And if they don't listen, actually, he says, reject them. And, And really, the application, I think, for us is, we want to reject those, own, those impulses that we have inside, those impulses to fight and to quarrel, those impulses to be divisive, those impulses to make a mountain out of a molehill. 
Paul's saying, you guys need to be about community. It's a value you need to have. It will tether you in humility and in kindness and in gentleness. It'll allow you to soar as a group. And for Paul, these aren't just like theories. It's not just like conceptual, like, hey, yeah, we should be a community. And, and, and then he doesn't have any faces behind that. We see at the end of the book, as he's wrapping it up, or the end of the letter, excuse me, there's, there's faces behind this for Paul. Community is about people. It's not about concepts. It's about people. He, he's saying, I'm going to send Artemis or Tychicus to you, Titus, so that you can come to me in Nicopolis. So Titus, uh, Paul is saying, Titus, I love you, man. I want to spend time with you. So, so come to me. I'm going to send a couple of my friends to cover for you there in the church, and you come to me. Let's be together. Community matters. Gathering matters. Come to me, Titus. I know it's going to take work, but I'll send people that I love, and you come to be with me. When he talks about Zenos, the lawyer, and Apollos, who are missionaries on their journey, and he's telling them, support them. If you know your Bible well, you know that there was rivalries in certain churches between Apollos and Paul. So some in the church, Apollos and Paul weren't doing this, but some in the church were saying, I'm for Apollos, and, and others were saying, I'm for Paul. So they were kind of like these, these pseudo-rivals. And Paul is like, no, there is no rivalry here. There is no dissension. Apollos is coming through. Do everything you can to make sure he lacks nothing. He's my brother. He's my friend. As Paul talks about community, it's not just conceptual, it's personal in church. As we think about this, we need to have that kind of a mindset. We can't look at people and see labels. We can't look at people in an election year and see conservative, liberal, Democrat, Republican. We can't look at each other that way. We can't look at each other and see differences of opinion on secondary issues. We can't look at each other and see differences socioeconomically or ethnically. We, we can't do that. We need to reject those things, avoid those things. Listen, the church has not done this well. Not Anchor Church, but the church. We all remember four years ago, it did not go well for division, did it? Why? Because we're not seeing people as people made in the image of God, brothers and sisters in Christ, abundantly filled with the Spirit. That's how we have to view each other. That person that you told someone else you can't stand, that is someone made in the image of God, filled with the Spirit of God. How can we say that? We can't. We have to see people. And around here, we call this being passionately one. It's one of our values. We want to be passionately one. We want to be about community. We don't want to just give community lip service. We want to be serious about gathering with one another. We want to be serious about serving one another. We want to be serious about loving each other across differences of opinion or belief. We want to be serious about forgiveness and reconciliation. We want to be passionately one. It's a tethering value that allows us to soar, that keeps us from being ripped apart by division, by silly arguments and quarreling. So we've got S O A. R, the last value is relishing the Bible. Relishing the Bible. Again, throughout this book in Titus, you are going to find this theme of sound teaching. It's all over the book. Paul is very concerned. This is a church that's planted on an island that is surrounded by paganism, by other teachings about other gods. 
And Paul is very concerned that the church be preserved with the sound teaching of the truth of who God is and what he calls them to. So you'll see it all over the, the Bible, or all over this, this book, this, this letter. He talks about pastors teaching. He talks about old women teaching. He talks about young men teaching. He says that the word keeps us from error. And it's by the word that we defend the faith. He talks about how the word of God instructs us in these good works, these values and actions. It's the word of God that we find those things. And it's the work, the good works that confirm the word. So we find our values from the word of God, and then we confirm the truth and the power of the word of God by walking out those values, those good works, those values in action. It's all about the Bible for Paul. He actually opens his letter this way. You can flip there with me in Titus chapter 1. This is how he opens the letter. He's got the scriptures, the Bible on his mind, the word of God. He introduces himself. He gives a greeting to Titus, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth. Oh, truth is important, Titus. I'm doing this work, he says, so that the elect, so that the the Christians might know the truth that leads to godliness and the hope of eternal life that God, who cannot lie, promised before time began. Where do we find those promises? In the Bible, in the scriptures. He goes on to say, in his own time, God has revealed his word in the preaching with which I, that being Paul, was entrusted by the command of God our Savior. Paul is so concerned that the church know the truth, be established in the truth, be walking out the truth, that they relish their Bibles. Paul's just echoing what Jesus said. In his, his final prayer, you find it in John 17, Jesus, God the Son, prayed in the, the power of God the Spirit to God the Father and said, sanctify them means set them apart by the truth. Your word is truth. Christian, you are set apart. You are sanctified by the word of God. We have to relish this book. We have to love this book. And here's why it's so important. The Bible is what keeps us from churchianity and allows us to walk out true Christianity. That's a new term for you. Maybe it was new to me recently, this idea of churchianity. Let me explain that real quick. What, what churchianity is, is it's this, uh, this phenomenon that happens when a people are biblically illiterate, meaning they don't cling to the Bible, they don't relish the Bible, they don't read the Bible, but they're active in church. And so what happens is their faith becomes rooted and grounded in their cultural expression of their leaders, of the people around them, of, of the things that they listen to on the news or on the internet. And it's, it's something that's actually happened throughout history. It's not unique to our time, but we do live in one of the most biblically illiterate times in human history. And what happens when you don't know your Bible is your biblical illiteracy goes down and your cultural experience of Christianity rises. And that cultural expression of Christianity has a lot of good elements to it. As we think about our culture, we're trying to build it on the Bible, but it's not the Bible. It's not the objective, true word of God. And when your faith is rooted in churchianity, it's going to lead you off into all sorts of weird places, all sorts of errors, all sorts of confusion. 
In fact, you know, one of the uh, criticisms of Christianity is things like the, the Inquisition, slavery, the church's involvement in slavery in America. And I would say those are expressions of churchianity, not Christianity. Those are times when we, as the body of Christ, were more rooted in the culture of the church than in the scriptures. Frederick Douglass, maybe you've heard of him, an escaped slave, said as much. He said that the, between the Christianity of this land and the Christianity of Christ, I can see no wider possible difference. He saw it as an enslaved person. He said, when I read the Bible... And when I experience my Christian masters, I experience radical, radically different things. Why? They were steeped in churchianity, not Christianity. They didn't know their Bibles in church. Every one of us is susceptible to that if we don't know our Bibles. Every one of us. Every one of us. Listen, I think our church is amazing. I love our church. I love all the pastors at our church. I love Julie, our worship. I love everything about our church. But if you are formed only by our church, you're going to find yourself in a place of churchianity, not Christianity. You need the Bible. You need a connection with God through his word. Church, it's important. It's where we come to know God and be known by him. The Bible opens our hearts and exposes the darkness. The the Bible teaches us of this God of glory who would save us. And we want to teach it Sunday in and Sunday out. We want to uh, make our huddles formed around the Bible and our anchor communities, but we also each need to relish the Bible. We need to be people of the Bible. And around here, we call that being purposely biblical. It's one of our values. We want to be purposely biblical, meaning we want to know God in his word and apply his word rightly. We want to read the Bible in context. We want to read books, not just literally, but literarily, meaning we want to understand the difference between narrative and poem and, uh, and, and all the different nuances of the Bible. We want to know those things because there we find God and there we're shaped by him. And as a church, we want to walk those things out. We want to be purposeful about that. We don't want to read the Bible and say, okay, that's cool, and then shut it and leave it and do our own thing. We want to be purposely biblical. So as we think about what remains and the things that really last, the things that tether us in in trials, our values are that tether because our values are all rooted in identity. We want to be purposely biblical because it's by the word that God reveals himself and that's where we find our identity and who he is. We want to be joyfully generous because God himself generously poured himself out for us and continues to pour himself out for us. So we want to be like him. These values are all rooted in identity. We want to be uh, relentlessly outward because God is the original evangelist. He's still evangelizing. He's still reaching the lost. And we want to be like him. We want to be passionately one because God exists as Trinity, perfect community. And God is bringing to himself a family, community. All these values are rooted in identity. It's why they will remain. It's why they will last. When the winds of trials come, you hold on to those values and the kite will soar on the winds higher, 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 even in in trial with exhilaration and joy. I know who holds me because I know him in his word. 
I, I know that his love and his grace is generously poured on me, and I'm experiencing it from my brothers and sisters in Christ around me. I can still be outreach-minded even in a trial because I know that God's goodness is bigger than my trial. I can gather in community even when things are difficult. Those values, they tether us in the, the winds of trial, but it may be even more importantly for us because this is more often our experience. These values tether us in the winds of prosperity. You know, the winds of prosperity maybe even blow harder than the winds of trial for many of us, but we don't notice it. The howl of the winds of prosperity is like a siren song. It sounds beautiful to us, but prosperity can blow us off in every direction as well unless we're grounded in being biblical and generous and outward and valuing community. Church, our values, they help us to soar in all conditions. Whether times are great, times are bad, we will be out there flying our kites on the winds. So let's talk about living this out real quick, and we will wrap this up. What are some things that you and I can be doing to make sure that we're soaring, that the, the kite doesn't fly away, the kite of our faith, or doesn't crash into the ground? I'm going to switch the metaphor here, so I'm going to own that. I'm gonna, it was just horrible. You're not supposed to switch the metaphor. I'm going to do it right now, okay? So follow me. First live it out point, get taken up in the winds of prayer regularly. Get taken up in the winds of prayer regularly. Listen, just as a kite is 100% dependent on the wind to fly, kite doesn't fly without wind. It's probably good I never got a kite as a kid because we don't get a whole lot of wind out here in Arizona. And you have to have wind to fly a kite. Church, you and I are 100% dependent on the Spirit of God to soar. We, we cannot just decide to soar on our own. We are dependent on the Spirit of God. And what you'll find in the Bible, in the original language, is that the Greek and the Hebrew word for wind and spirit, are, it's, it's the same word translated. So, so the literal translation of the Spirit of God would be the wind of God. Okay, So spirit and wind, same word. Jesus even references this in John 3. He talks about the Spirit, the work of the Spirit being like the wind. You don't know where it came from or where it's going. It blows wherever it will. Church, would we be those who are taken up in the winds of prayer regularly in our personal devotional lives? Listen, if you are like me and you struggle with prayer, let me throw you a bone here. I get it. I, I struggle with prayer as well. I struggle to be consistent and to pray as long as I want to. Here's something you can do. You can pray through each one of our four values every day, and it will actually give you a lot of opportunity to pray. As you read the word, pray. Pray that God would reveal himself to you. If something stands out to you, pray through that. Lord, I feel like I'm being convicted in this area. Lord, I don't understand this. Just pray as you read your Bible. If you need somewhere to start, just read the Psalms. Pray a Psalm a day. As you think about being joyfully generous, take your budget and pray about it. Lord, where would you have me pour out more of my money for others? As you look at your schedule, Lord, where would you have me give more of my time to serve others? As you look at your contact list, Lord, who is not a friend right now that should be? Well, that's a lot of opportunity to pray, isn't it? You think about being relentlessly outward. Pray for your one. 
Pray that God would save them. Pray for the things that they have going on in their lives. You think about community. Pray for those that are in your anchor community, in your huddle. Pray for them and their different struggles and the things that are going well. Pray especially for those in the church that maybe you're having a harder time with, that you struggle with. Pray for them. It's hard to dislike someone when you pray for them regularly. You know how much time that would take if you and I just prayed through those four values every day? We'd be a lot less efficient, I think, from a worldly perspective. But man, that is a lot of ammo to pray. And I think God would do a great thing in us. So get taken up in the winds of prayer regularly. Do it in your personal devotion life. Do it as you gather in community. Pray with your huddles. Pray with your anchor communities. Pray on a Sunday morning when someone shares something with you that's difficult. Just stop in that moment and pray for them. We want to be a praying people. We want to be people who are taken up on the winds of prayer regularly. Secondly, be real with yourself and others about what you really value. Be real about it. I've been reading uh, recently a pretty thick volume about spiritual renewal. It's essentially about revivals in, in modern America, the, beginning with the first great revival and, and on up through. And one of the consistent themes that I'm seeing in this book, in these revivals, in these renewals where God, where God works, is on the one hand, there's tons of prayer. That's always consistent. And the other thing is there is confession and repentance all over the place. People are praying, and they're also looking and saying, Lord, I am falling short. They're confessing that to him. They're confessing that to others. And then they're repenting, which is a churchy word. It means turning from those things. All over the place in those revivals. Prayer, confession, repentance. Here is where confession and repentance starts with. Just being real. Just being real. It starts with meeting with your huddle group. And instead of saying, yeah, I just haven't found the time to read the Bible lately. Just being real and saying, I don't value the Bible right now. Because guess what? We make time for the things we value. Instead of saying, man, I just, I just don't have margin for community right now. Just be real. I don't value community right now. Just be real about it. Because again, we make time for the things we value. We will do the things we value. We will. So we've got to be real about it. We've got to confess that to one another. And not leave it at confession, but repent. Because here's the reality. As we think about these values, every one of them for us as a church and for us individually, let's be real about this. Yeah, I just invited you to be real. Let me be real. Every one of these is at the same time true and aspirational. Every one of our values. So it's true that we as a church are relentlessly outward. We have baptisms. We see people come to faith. And at the same time, we could be a lot better, couldn't we? They're aspirational. It's true that we are a church, are joyfully generous. Look at our budget. Look at the benevolence. Look at the people serving one another. That is true. And also, there's a lot of opportunity, isn't there? And that's true for each of us. Every one of these values, there are elements of truth and there's opportunity for growth. And here's the thing, you will not grow if you aren't real. And you won't grow very much if you don't confess it to others. So be real with yourself, be real with others. Let's take that seriously so that we might see a, a, a renewal among us. Don't you want to see God work? Don't you want to see renewal in 2024? I know I do. That starts with prayer, confession, repentance may be true of us and invite the band up as we close church our values help us to soar not just 
get by, not just fight against the wind, not just survive, but to thrive, to rise on the winds higher, higher, higher with exhilaration and with joy. And don't you want to experience that? I know I do. Church, we have, uh, many of us have kids that are watching. And they need to see their parents experiencing a faith that has them soaring on the winds. We all have friends who are not Christians who are watching. And they need to see someone who's experiencing the work of God in such a way that they soar on the winds of trial and of prosperity. Principled, rooted in values, grounded to these identity uh, rooted values that are based in the person and work of God and what's going to happen when they see it. I think God could do a great work in us and through us. Amen? May it be true of us. Let me pray for us and then we'll sing and take communion. Lord, uh, we thank you for who you are. Lord, as we talk about values, as we talk about good works and action, all of them are rooted in you. Father, we're just trying to live up to our, 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 the glory of our dad. We're just trying to honor you. We're, we're just trying to please you. And Lord, I know that you see that. You see the areas where we are doing really well. You see the areas where we're not and you love us anyway. And so we can confess to you this morning, Lord, that as we, we want to be principled, we want to hold to these values, we confess the ways in which we fall short. We confess that we need you to work. We confess our dependence upon you. You are the wind that makes the kite fly. And so Lord, help us as we, um, as we enter this new year. Help us to be dependent on you. Help us to be principled. Help us to value the things that you value. And Lord, help us to do it all for your glory and not our own. Help us to see your kingdom go forward in our lives and in the lives of those who right now do not know you. Would they see your glory through our values and action? Would they come to know you? That's our hope and that's our prayer. We want to be used by you, God. We want to honor you. We want to give back to you the love that you've poured out on us. And so may it be true of us. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. I really hope that you were encouraged by the sermon today. You can learn more about us at anchorchurchgilbert.com. We'd love to have you join our mailing list. You can do that on the website. If you have any questions for us about who Jesus is, please let us know through our website. I hope that you were encouraged.